Anthony Gardner is professor of contemporary art history at the University of Oxford, where he was the head of the Ruskin School of Art from 2017 to 2020. He has published widely on subjects including post-colonialism, post-socialism, and curatorial histories. His books include Politically Unbecoming, Post-Socialist Audience Democracy, and Biennials, Triennials, and Documenta, the exhibitions that created contemporary art, co-authored with Charles Green. Anthony Gardner, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. And so today, all of us are thinking about, as we face many challenges, the coronavirus and global warming, making us rethink the way we show and transport art. You've written extensively about the history of exhibitions and curation. What do these global challenges mean for the future of museums and exhibitions? And that's a really interesting question. I think one of the core things that, that art can offer in especially in times of crisis, is a way of reimagining what might be possible with the worlds that we live in, how we might inhabit them differently, in what ways we might engage with the spaces, the people, the other beings around us. And that other ways of being in the world might be possible, I think is one of the core aspects of, of art, not just in terms of visual engagement, visual stimuli, but thinking about other senses, about movement through space, about listening, about the touch and feel of the world around us, of relating to things around us. And that's going to have to be one of the core aspects of any kind of display or museum engagement for the future is thinking about how the works that we are showing that we're making, that we are presenting and sharing with others, how they might help us to think differently about how we engage with these worlds, especially as they go through different kinds of changes, shifts, transformations. So in that sense, I think museums, galleries, art making, but also the interpretation of it, the display of it, can be shepherds, perhaps, towards thinking of a better world. I know that has been argued for a long time about art, but I think now, especially with, as you said, coronavirus pandemics, catastrophic climate change and so forth. And these points are really pressing for us to think about at the moment. And so it's interesting because the traditional model of museums and exhibitions have been one where really, as you say, they're guardians of our memory and our collective memory in ways in the last decade or two decades with a technological age, with everyone. It was said so in the past that everyone is an artist from Joseph Voice, but really now I don't think he could have even envisaged the way everyone feels they're an artist or if not an artist, a curator of their own life. So as our collective memory, as our art making process has been shifted in many ways, at least there's this parallel activity online through the various platforms. And how do you see what are exciting ways that the museum and exhibitions are responding to those shifts? In, in many ways, we're experiencing the artworks before we visit the museum, and maybe we never visit the museum. Yeah. It's a really curious time for that, isn't it? Because in many cases, we can't actually get out even of our own apartment or house or room in order to see a museum or a gallery, not just in another part of the world, but perhaps even just down the street. And I like this point about the shift from everyone being an artist to everyone's a curator now. And I think what that suggests is that people are taking a lot more care and time and precision, but also responsibility for themselves again, within that, within the worlds that they're living, that we're living in. And one of the really curious things about what's happening with uh, museum and gallery spaces again, it's coming after art has been doing this for decades, centuries, is responding to what's already happening out there in the world. You, me, and, and everybody else, we're presenting our ideas, presenting our thought, presenting ourselves and our arguments in very creative ways. How might institutional spaces or institutional systems of display, like museums and galleries, learn from what is already happening on the ground through those grassroots initiatives that people are just generating through their own interests, through their curiosity, through their creativity. And the, that meeting point then between what an institution is doing and what the, the population is doing, what a general public is doing, becomes one of the core factors, I think, for a creative reimagining of display, a creative reimagining of what curating 
might be because for many people, curating isn't just a selection of things or objects or images. It is a means of telling stories. And that is such a core part of so many cultures, perhaps all cultures, is how we tell stories, how we share our narratives. And as you said, generate and celebrate collective memories of different kinds. So to learn about that through techniques and strategies that people who are using Instagram or other kinds of online platforms, especially, and seeing them be transposed, transformed, and reimagined, reignited within other kinds of spaces, such as a museum, such as a gallery, such as an artist studio, such as a classroom, I think becomes a really uh, fascinating core factor in terms of not only the kinds of stories that we're telling, but the ways that we're telling them and how the, those means of telling stories transform the stories themselves so that that sense of, of a collective memory expands, shifts, becomes something even more fantastic and creative and curious. And I've been interested in about some of these initiatives and uh, Laurent Lebon of the Musée Picasso, where I've seen others at the Centre Pompidou and, and elsewhere, they're all around the world, where the art has become a bridge between generations or people who might not otherwise meet, like refugees, explaining their interpretation of a painting. Or Laurent Lebon was telling me in the Musée Picasso, they have an initiative of course, everything's on a little bit on pause now, uh, where young people will, you know, really small children explain the artworks to their, their grandparents. And as you say, it's revitalized in the telling of the stories about these artworks. And so I always love that because it does remind us that an artwork or a masterpiece isn't just something that's fixed in time. I think maybe the quality of its greatness that is that it lives on and transforms in our imaginations and through the different people who see it. Totally agree. I totally agree. One of the things that I love about being a lover of art and lover of exhibitions and seeing artworks, because that's first and foremost what keeps me going, why I do the jobs that I do, is because of a love for, for the material. And sharing that and learning from people with very different experiences, very different ways of interpreting or sensing an artwork, becomes such an expansive, explosive way of thinking about different ways of reading or different ways of thinking about what it is that other people are uh, exploring. I love seeing with children for that reason. It reminds me actually in many ways what it was that got me wanting to see art, which was again that, that sense of curiosity of molding a sense of myself and developing a confidence of thinking with somebody else not just generationally, but across swathes of time and cultural difference. Somebody who could have been uh, dead for 500 years, you can still have that engagement with their thoughts, their desire, their ambitions through an artwork. Similarly, if you're looking at a work that's just been made, is thinking about where your interpretation meets the ambitions and aims of somebody else, the intentions of somebody else, and how those two meet, sometimes clash, often gel, create new sparks, new interpretations, and that possibility for creative thinking, you know, it's so rare at the moment. It's often muddled out of us as we age, as we are expected to take on different kinds of responsibilities that we're meant to secure ourselves in our lives. But actually, sometimes the most interesting thing is when you break out of that set of templates. And that is precisely where sharing those interpretations from very different kinds of experiences seeing things, explaining things, sharing things that you are seeing in a work or feeling in a work that no one else might have had that same kind of experience or that same thought. And so that process of sharing something new, sharing something that is a complete spark and a catalyst for excitement, to have that, especially again at the moment when we are locked in our rooms, when we're locked in our spaces or concerned about the future, to have that creative possibility is such a lively moment. And of course, be able to share where that's coming from. You talked about people of asylum, people from different cultures, sharing these kinds of, of interpretations. And some of the best ways that museums and galleries have been working with communities is by creating spaces for this sharing of narratives, it could be through word, it could be through food, it could be through image making, it could be through a whole range of things. But to get a sense of 
what other people are experiencing, have experienced, have thought, might want to share, just creates a much more humane understanding of what a world might be. And I hear from you, obviously, we are both very excited about art. So it will not be something that we'll ever think is a sideshow, which sometimes people do in, in yeah. times of crisis. I'm an artist and I'm lucky to speak to many talented artists and curators. And so that excitement won't leave me. And so I've been listening to some different people's perspectives on the challenges we face. So speaking to Chris Durkin, of course, formerly of Tate Modern and now at Grand Palais, and he's really excited about the challenges and how it forces the museums to reinvent themselves. And then I listen to other national museums who may be struggling just to make sure that they can keep their doors open because people, habits change. And then you don't know when people go back to having this excitement that you and I share about the museum. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that, what the smaller museum may need to do, or what does this mean in the past, certainly there's always been a big trend for these blockbuster museum shows. And whether that means now with, as you say, from global warming or not being able to transport paintings, whether that creates something interesting. You've written a lot also about the, the translocal that creates something like we, what we can discover about ourselves locally. Just what are your thoughts on the future? It's curious. I have spent a lot of time writing about art and internationalism and exhibitions that bring a lot of big name artists and big name works together in one space, thinking about biennials and triennials, exhibitions like Documenta or Manifesta. And one of the things that I've learnt actually from seeing these exhibitions and, and like you from speaking with artists and curators and visitors and a whole range of people is that Sometimes the works that stand out the most or those experiences that stand out the most aren't the blockbuster, spectacular events. It's actually the more modest gestures. It's the moment that takes a visitor by surprise. I'm thinking about one example that happened a few years ago was Documenta in Kassel, one of the big Leviathan exhibitions, huge exhibition, takes place every five years in the German city of Kassel. And in 2012, there was a work by an artist called Ryan Gander that you walked into the main museum called the Museo Fredericianum, and it was just a gust of wind that propelled you through the space, actually curiously towards Picasso, but a gust of wind that pulled you through the space. And we weren't quite sure whether it was because of the doors, if this was actually just the way that the museum uh, was built and how it functioned, or if it was an artwork. But this sense of being pulled into a space of culture, into a space of creativity, into a space of possibility. With your consent, curious about where you might go and having that uncertainty, but also that, that pleasure that can come with being guided into that kind of space. Such a modest gesture. It was very set up. It was very built up. It wasn't something done by surprise, but it was a very modest gesture. And I think at the moment when even unpacking the dishwasher can sometimes be the biggest event of the day. Sometimes those modest gestures are as important as the excitement of going to see a huge exhibition, a blockbuster, as you say, a spectacular show. So having those spaces for, for both of these processes, for both of these types of things, I think is going to be uh, really important. And especially for spaces that may not have the funds of the spaces that, that Chris Durkin is, is running, but nonetheless have possible community engagement or an audience engagement that might even be greater because you can use uh, spaces on the streets. You can inhabit some of the buildings that have been unfortunately closed because businesses and companies have closed down over the pandemic. And I've started to see this a lot in Oxford and some of the other towns and cities that I've been to. Seeing how artists and others are wanting to inhabit spaces that might otherwise still lie empty, still lie fellow. And create a space for presenting their own work, for even putting a smile on somebody's face as they pass by that space. Those kinds of modest um, interventions, modest gestures, I think are going to be so important in the coming years. They're not that expensive to generate. They do have a really rich and fascinating footfall because of the types of people who might be passing by a shop window, for instance, or an abandoned shop window. 
or a space on the street that would otherwise be unoccupied or might have been overgrown with weeds over the last 12, 18 months. Doing something with those kinds of spaces. I've just been doing this all the time, these kinds of pop-ups. And again, that's something that you see with food cultures, with other kinds of music cultures, is that the generosity and richness of pop-ups and how we can support them. You know, it's not just something that should be done freely by an artist. We have to support these kinds of initiatives as well. And I think that's actually where the institutions can be working at their best is that people have these desires to create these kinds of pop-ups, to create these kinds of spaces for sharing. But if institutions have money, like those that Chris Durkin is running, then let's try to support the artists. Let's try to support the creative practitioners to inhabit those spaces, to create you know, our cities differently and to share what it is that they can do, want to do, have to do to make the situation better for us. Yes, I'm all in for the, the community engagement and having those footfalls that are not just limited to traditional art audiences. It's been a little bit on pause in the last uh, year or so with our exhibition schedule. It was really important for the creative process as a traveling exhibition, which was launched at the Sorbonne, is that you do get this engagement and we have the feedback from the different departments within the university. And they said, oh, that's interesting because it's the first time that so many of our different departments came together. We don't normally talk to each other. And I found it very interesting that we would be acting as a bridge where they'd be asking me to introduce them to another department and it's in their own university. So I really love that. And then for our inaugural exhibition, it was seen by over 40,000 people because it is in the central hall at the Sorbonne. So that's really nice. Yeah, it's not a blockbuster, overly funded. But yeah, it's something I think about a lot because I think about even environmental podcasts as well called The One Planet. So mm. I always like to make sure that our carbon footprint is minimal. Like it can be transported in some suitcases. It's really designed to be modular, but the engagement is what's important and it's what people come away with. And I'm really happy to see more of that. We haven't done pop-ups, say, in shops, but we've been fortunate to be in the university, which I think is a great microcosm of society. Everyone comes together there for the purpose of learning and then they can enjoy art. What they might not necessarily have opportunities to because of not everyone is drawn to learning through a museum. So it's, it's nice to give people what they weren't looking for. I would prefer to do that than to just be communicating with an audience that is already there, yeah. that's already receptive. Yeah. And so from your point of view, you said your original reason for being drawn towards art, you really used it, and, and I would direct people to read your books, as a vehicle for understanding society and politics and so many things. So why is that the medium, although you explore it in books, but as opposed to books or films? I think art can engage with the body, the mind, the imagination in you know, so many different ways that can complement modes of thinking, other modes of creating and, and thinking through and working through and devising. I was thinking about this in relation to the last 18 months and, and how the sciences have you know, rightly been heralded as the great way of getting ourselves out of this pandemic. The culture is the way and art is the way that we've been getting through the pandemic. So many people have been watching Netflix, reading, singing music, uh, playing music, making images, making art as a way of getting through a very difficult times and reflecting through that process. And in that sense, the sciences complement the arts and the arts complement the sciences because you can't get out of a situation without getting through it. So in order to get to the end of this set of crises, we have to be able to work through them. And so art becomes a very important means and space and time for being able to reflect, but also delve into thinking through and thinking with the situations we have at hand and the situations we find ourselves in. And that includes making mistakes. That includes making errors, which are a fundamental part of learning, is to have that space for experimentation and to learn from the mistakes that we make, that generative error. And so that's one of the reasons, I think, why art is such a crucial component of any kind of world making, along, of course, with other arts, such as music, but also other practices, such as the sciences, in order to be able to experiment and think about what can we do with 
what's at hand in order to be able to, as I said, get through a situation, reflect on a situation in order to then find a way out of difficult situations. And you see this with art time and time again, is if the socio-political situation is very difficult, often art becomes a means not only to express oneself, but to think about what might still be feasible and possible when the darkest of times are happening. It is that spark of curiosity that can often just shine a light into a very difficult space. And the focus, significant portion of your writing, talking about cultures and societies going through difficult periods, you write about post-socialist art, you know, just discuss ways those societies that you write about have used arts as a way of coming through. So there's some of the work that I've been looking at really fascinated related to how artists have responded to the kinds of cultural climates that have been set out almost top down in some cultural contexts. You can think of the Soviet Union, of Romania in the 1970s, 1980s. We might want to think about some of the circumstances now under neoliberal capitalism, whereby it doesn't feel like there are many options available to us. I think that's one of the, the complaints that a lot of people have, for instance, about spectacular exhibitions. It's just at this particular point in time, everybody is looking to be as spectacular as possible, to brand their cities as much as possible for touristic purposes in order to generate money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that that can actually stifle a lot of creativity because it sets up certain kinds of expectations about what is going to be considered, you know, quote unquote, good art or the quote unquote kind of practice. And what I've been interested in is seeing how artists have tried to challenge that fairly limited way of thinking, that system of thinking, to generate other ways of exploring what to go back to something I said earlier, that sort of sharing process might be of ideas of relating to work, of using art to create almost like a micro community of possibility within a system of locked down thought that is a sort of a social or humanitarian. And so an artist such as Ilya Kabakov, for instance, based in Moscow in the 1970s and 80s and earlier, of course, setting up these events within his studio so he was a, a children's book illustrator, uh, amongst other things, as well as a phenomenal writer. And one of the things that he would do in the 1970s and 60s and into the 80s was to have these nights in his studios where he would share, recount these narratives, completely fantastical, almost surreal narratives of people hiding in closets and then flying off into space. And it was that process of sharing these stories, these fantastical, imaginative stories with friends, almost like a children's nighttime storytelling situation or a game that then creates a different space, a different possibility within this very privileged zone of the artist studio. And with that, it's fairly clandestine. It's hidden away. It's why a lot of people talk about this kind of work as not official, as unofficial art, because it's creating this kind of kernel of other possibilities within an official world that is otherwise fairly gray and mundane and uniform. And we're seeing that with a lot of interest in the arts at the moment of wanting to shake a system that feels like it is inevitable. It feels today with climate change, with neoliberal catastrophes, with the major repercussions of uneven wealth, of uneven exposure to environmental degradation, that nothing can be done. And actually one of the core aspects of art is to think about what might still be possible and using that as a really powerful tool and weapon against a thinking that shuts itself down to norms to what is expected. I think that's where art is at its most powerful and has been for centuries in lots of different contexts. And I've just been fortunate to be able to work with and explore some of those very particular contexts in parts of Central and Eastern Europe, but also other parts of the world through the kinds of engagements that I've been uh, 
fascinated by it. It's interesting. I think that, as you mentioned early on in the conversation, that there are many ways of seeing and approaching art. There's the art historical perspective, wanting to understand why something's made, the culture in which it's made. And I think a lot of artists also are interested in that, but also interested in how it's made. And they look at the artwork as a living object and they can identify each stroke or each mark and work backwards into it as a living object. And then there's this other part of art collecting or the auction house, which is not to say that there isn't a great deal of scholarship in that. But then it's, it goes back to what you're saying about the blockbuster shows or the names or an ossified art, which mm-hmm. almost seems like it's about identification. And once it's approved art, it's a masterpiece and it's by this master that almost once it's been certified, then it might result in a sense of seeing until the point in which you don't see it anymore. It becomes so visible, it's invisible. People are really interested in whether a work of art is made by one of the big names. I'm really against this kind of commodification of art and yeah. losing touch with the initial purpose. Yeah, and I think that's why this moment of surprise, I think that can disrupt that Ossification, I think that's a really nice way of putting it, an ossification of thinking, of expectation, of experience. What I'm more interested in, and I'm I'm very lucky that something that I love is also my job and therefore I love what it is that I do and I can luxuriate in that. But if I'm going to a, a museum, for instance, or a gallery, sometimes I will just wander around and see what might take my interest. And even if it's a big name, even if it's a signature artist, from East Asia, from Western Europe, doesn't matter where, just sitting and or standing and, and looking at the work and trying to think about, as you said, you know, what it is that an artist is often thinking about, about a brushstroke that was made or an mistake that happened that was actually really fortuitous. Those surprises that then can speak to opening up thought, opening up imagination, perhaps even getting a sense of what might have unfolded in that moment of creation. You know, that set of surprises becomes a really important thing because it also means that you might then be able to take that openness to other kinds of experiences. So seeing an exhibition and not expecting this artist and this artist or this idea and that idea will be in it. And if it happens, that's great. The checklist has been signed off. And if it doesn't, then the exhibition's a failure doesn't really work like that or it doesn't have to work like that. What's more interesting is actually going into an exhibition or the experience of an artwork with an open mind and seeing what kind of proposition, what kind of suggestion is being raised by the display, by the work that's being shown, by the people who have made the exhibition or the artworks and thinking about, okay, what is it trying to do? What is it trying to say? What is it trying to engage me with? What can I unlearn about myself through that process as much as what I can learn about 18th century Italian painting or Ming Dynasty porcelain or something like that? And that sense of unlearning, the surprise, I think becomes a really important way for precisely for that reimagination that any cultural form can offer. And that can then be transposed into everything from what am I going to cook tonight? Oh, let's surprise ourselves to having a very open mind about the kinds of conversations that we might have with other people later in the day or later in the week. So it becomes a space for experimenting with what we might want to do with our lives and bring to our lives, as well as the pleasures that can come with engaging with other people's minds and other people's imaginations and thoughts and the space, the time for doing that. It's a That's why I think galleries and studios and classrooms are spaces of possibility. They're incubators for an enriching of curiosity. Yes, I love that incubators of curiosity. And I was wondering, you speak about unknowing and it's difficult. So there's two things. So how do you think that the monetary value of a work of art, the setting it's shown in or the name or brand attached to it influences our perception of it? And then also, I guess, on another note is how does our pre-exposure to works of art digitally or through social media influence our perception of it if we do finally get face-to-face? They're two really important questions. In terms of the monetary value, I'm guilty of this as well. 
It's, it's not just monetary value. It's that absence of value of expectation, which for many people has a dollar or euro value attached to it. For others, it might be that signature name or brand name or something like that. And I will travel or used to travel to other places in order to have those kinds of encounters with a work or a show or a curator that I think I really should be having that kind of engagement with. And that's a sense of a, a valuing or branding that's come from outside rather than from within. It doesn't prevent someone from having other kinds of experiences and simply going, oh, I've seen the Mona Lisa. I can now tick that off my bucket list. You might have one of those really fortunate experiences and they're very rare. This is why uh, we value them so much of actually looking at the Mona Lisa and thinking, wow, that's a really fascinating landscape behind her. How has Leonardo painted in that way? Or why is the crack emerged in this particular place and not in others? And that might then open up different ways of thinking about or looking at that object, looking at that painting, rather than just, oh, it's on a tea towel, I can have a selfie in front of it. Is that slowing down of the process so that it's not just about the desire to fulfill somebody's expectations about, as I said, sort of ticking something off a bucket list because it's worth a lot of money or because it's got the right kind of branding associated with it. Often that will follow from people having these kinds of experiences going, wow, that's a really great work because of this and this reason and this reason, or it's really great. And I'm not quite sure why, but I want to explore it further. And that's even you know, more fascinating is wanting to spend even more time with an artwork or like a book or anything else at film because you want to have those other kinds of experiences. And they're still possible even when there's big monetary value attached to something or there's a, a big name associated with something. You can still have those processes of unlearning in order to learn differently or to feel differently. And in terms of the pre-exposure through digital imaging, that's been the case with reproductions, not just digital reproductions or even photographic reproductions, but thinking about print media and wood prints and other kinds of printmaking technologies from the 15th, 16th centuries. And the duplication or replication of a work in another form in order to not only spread knowledge about the original, let's call it the original, say a painting by Dura, for instance. So spreading knowledge about that, but also creating a different kind of market and expectation about that. And for some people, it's a lure to go and see that original. And I think that's actually can be a really great thing to go and want to see what it is about a work, what it is about a painting or a moving image piece by an artist that triggers your curiosity and makes you feel like you want to see it live in the flesh properly. However, you want to understand that original work. I think there's a realization that pre-exposure might whet the appetite, but it can't fulfill the craving to see something or experience something. Conversely, a lot of those digital reproductions or photographic reproductions works in themselves. And so a lot of people have learned about, not just learned about art and arts histories through reproductions like that, but have learned about different technologies of communication, different systems of knowledge making and engagement with works and markers of other times and other cultures, precisely through those technologies of communication and thinking about what is it that is underpinning how we learn not just what we learn, but how we learn it can be a really fascinating way of thinking about the worlds we're living in and how we engage with each other, how we engage with knowledge, how we can contribute to that ourselves, but also how we can have sometimes a necessarily skeptical or critical approach to what it is that is being fed to us as quote unquote important. And I think that's really crucial at a time of algorithms when so many of our social media feeds or indeed any other kinds of digital feeds that are run by algorithms that kind of set up desires, expectations as though they're our own, but actually they're being presented to us as though they were our own. And so that requires a lot more intelligence about visual imagery, but also the systems through which we engage with and encounter images. I think that's an incredibly pressing consideration at this point in time. And it's something that this pre-exposure through digital imagery, through digital technologies is really bringing to the fore.
And expanding from that about what the place of showing does to a work of art, I reflect also on the displaying of indigenous art or works of art such as the Elgin marbles and many others or the Parthenon marbles, which are no longer in their country of origin, and yet they're reaching wide audiences. So it's an issue that many of our institutions here also in France are reflecting upon and how best to deal with them and, and how does that affect how we receive those artworks? That's one of the biggest questions for actually culture in general at the moment. Has been for a long time. And I think this is where we need to reflect on centuries of violence and not just the present time, not just the fact that, say, with the Parthenon marbles being presented in the British Museum, that they're in a dedicated space and so forth. There's more that's pressing with those marbles because of where they're coming from, where they came from, what is being presented as a justification for you know, maintaining them in London. It's really important to see the recognition on the part of museums in parts of the, what I call the North Atlantic region, so Western Europe, North America, but also other parts of the world, for returning objects to their homes. You know, those objects were stolen in many cases from the spaces that they had been presented for decades, centuries, that were crucial to their framing, not just as artworks or artifacts, but as living, used entities, as parts of an ongoing set of worlds. And that's often the case with indigenous communities, for instance. Sometimes, of course, it gets incredibly complex and complicated, not only because of the ways that colonialism and imperialism have functioned in the past and continue to function today, but what it means to decolonize some of these institutions. My own thoughts on this increasingly are that to decolonize a museum actually sometimes means having to return all of the objects that a museum might hold to their original homes, which might mean then the dissolution of that particular museum as we've managed. But if that museum has built itself up on violent acts, on theft, on appropriation, then that is the best thing to do, to return objects to the people who not only may know them best, for whom they were a living part of everyday life. As I said, that's something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. There are going to be complications to that and they will have to proceed on a case-by-case -case basis. But that sense of home, of an object's home, is sometimes one of the most important considerations to take into account, as well as why it was that an object became displaced in the same way that we might think about why do people become displaced? It's because they have to move from their homes. And so thinking about how we can improve situations at home, but also in the, the for those objects when they return home. Hi, I'm Eric Rosen. There's a piece in the Art Institute of Chicago's Modern Way that's just these words, taken from where it came from and taken to a place and used in such a manner that it can only remain as a representation of what it was, where it came from. It's referencing the usage of artifacts from non-Western cultures as museum pieces, stripped of functionality, only able to exist as representations of themselves. It's blunt and it's powerful. Later in the interview, Mia and Anthony discuss the controversies surrounding art pieces in museums far from their homelands, with the Parthenon marbles being only one example and countless pieces from indigenous America and the global South being many more. Both agree that returnal should be a high priority for museums, even if, as Gardner suggests, it would mean the dissolution of a given museum, a noble institution built on colonial plunder. Perhaps if a nation is too unstable and returnal risks the destruction of an art piece, then waiting is an option. But to give back what was stolen is a form of belated justice, isn't it? Maybe. I'm only half convinced. Because over at the Field Museum of Natural History, an institution admittedly built on Colombian Exposition-era all-American pillaging, the directors of the museum are trying to find compromise. In the upcoming renovations for the Native North America Hall, 
the work put on display there will not just be the decision of the curators, but of the tribes that have partnered with the museum and are donating their work. I think this is an excellent way forward. Let the people from whom museum pieces were stolen have them back, and then let those people decide what they want to show a Western audience. After all, when we go to see Kuakyodo ritual masks or Navajo pottery in an art museum, we don't concern ourselves over much about who made it or what they were trying to convey in the way we care about individual expression with Western painters and sculptors. We go to see the symbols of another culture, to be voyeurs into a world that is not our own in the strictest sense. And we do it with artifacts that are usually the result of colonial expeditions and acquisitions for people who did not have the guns to resist those acquisitions. We see another people, but not through their own eyes and not on their own terms. In light of such injustice, it's easy to just say, fine, give back the artifacts and dissolve the museums or leave Western museums to only display Western work. But then we are refusing to see other people entirely, I think. And isn't that worse? Shutting out portrayals of cultures we've exploited because we can't bear to look at how we've changed them and how those peoples and cultures persist? We're ignoring that historically, the exchange and contact and mixing of civilizations happened well before colonialism and imperialism and will hopefully continue long after the legacy of those centuries of violence has faded. So I think it's better to let indigenous and global South voices decide how they want to be heard, give them a space to let that voice be heard by Western audiences, and call that space a museum. And I don't just mean the voice of a collective people. Let's value the work of singular artists from there, as surely as we value the work of the great masters from here. Let's turn museums into open forums of possible worlds, as Gardner puts it. And let's dispense with the idea that museums are fundamentally about taking and make them more about giving. Now, back to the interview. And I think there are, as you say, case by case, there may be some instances where the countries that they were taken from are no longer stable. There's just too much turmoil and that we'd have to consider about how important it is to keep the art object intact. But I think that technologies have offered us many interesting possibilities, what with holograms and 3D printing and all sorts of imaging that one could still have. And there's this huge interest in virtual exhibition. I did do an interview with Dimitris Pantomalis of the Acropolis Museum, and he said, it is ridiculous because you have the heads over here and the bodies over there. They have to be whole again. And of course, the Acropolis Museum is a beautiful museum. So I think it would be nice with the British Museum may do something. Obviously, there's a long history there that I don't think it would have to be entirely removed. There's an interesting history that they can display. So I do feel it's important to bring these art objects home because then you get this real understanding. And that's always what it's been for me, I think, is to understand where something comes from. And it's the whole idea behind this creative process is that something isn't complete and whole. It has a story and evolution that I think you know, it's very interesting because I think that's one of the I mean, you as an academic will feel this, but I think that generally museum goers, they're interested in the creative process and how is something made. A few years ago, there was the 500th anniversary of the passing of Da Vinci. And you could see that his works on paper, which really described all his writing, how he made things. And then there were some remarkable paintings. I found that people were looking at as much at the works on paper, which explained his creative process, if not more than the paintings that were so complete, so perfect, but they could see his thought process. So you see people spending a lot of time on those. And so I, I think that is one of the reasons people go to museums, that and what you say, like with this gust of wind, this encounter mm. that pulls you along that you just can't predict. The physical sensation like that, and then this thought process behind. I think those are the two, one of the two main reasons. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that it's not just that process of creativity, it's that process of history as well. And it's one of the things that's been really fascinating about some of the, whether they be ethnographic museums or spaces like the British Museum, but also the National Gallery or some of the other galleries, is recounting the sometimes very challenging stories of provenance of how an object was acquired, where it came from, whose collections it might have been in, 
what some of the problematic histories and challenges, particularly in the 18th, 19th and into the 20th centuries might have been. And actually presenting that as part of the process of an object or a work's existence. And I think that is going to continue to be a very important consideration, for instance, if the Parthenon marbles are returned to Athens and say 3D printing casts of those marbles are kept in British Museum. Also the stories that underpin why a 3D printing cast was made, why the objects have been kept or returned, where they came from and why they were taken in the first place. And being very honest about those stories, about those histories, because as you said, people are really interested in process. It's not just the object. The object is like a, a spark for getting a better sense of how that object came to be, including how that object came to be in that space at this time. So that process of creativity of making that object or work, but the process of history that underpins how that work was made, where it moved to afterwards, how it got to here, and how we managed to have, or in that situation of having that kind of encounter. But people are really fascinated by that. It's why when you see exhibitions, not just historical, but contemporary as well, people want to know about who the artist is, what the times were like when these works were being made, even how an object is conserved and the process of conserving a work and, and engaging with the history of a work or a painting on that material level. A real fascination with the process because it, it opens up knowledge of just how an object was made, but almost how that object might've been made differently. You know, the difficulties associated with the times in which an object was made, whether Renoir, for instance, was before he lost use of his arm or afterwards, and what that does to the making of a painting. And all these things that people often don't reflect on because we don't have the time to, but if we're given the space and opportunity to do, it becomes this font of possibility of thinking. Exactly. The more you know about something and how it's made, the more exciting it becomes. So yeah. I, I think in closing, as you think about the importance of the arts, education, technology, environment, we're thinking a lot about the future and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation. What are some lessons that have been important for you and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I'm going to pinpoint three things. One is to support the opportunities, particularly for kids, but not only for kids, to engage with culture, whether it be art, music, you know, something that, that isn't going to be the everyday living at home, doing homework, doing that chores aspects of life. Because it's often those sparks, those catalysts that can transform a life, a moment that can open up different desires for what it is that a kid wants their future to be. And that was certainly the case for me, being able to see artworks and, and being left alone, almost babysat by a painting or a photograph and just being fascinated by that and allowing my desire, giving permission for my desire to run free and for my imagination to flow through that engagement with a cultural work. So I think that's a, a core thing is you know, creating opportunities and supporting opportunities for people to have those kinds of experiences. Second thing then would be supporting the creation of artworks and cultural works through support for schools and for different kinds of initiatives that can allow again space for people, whether it be students or people learning different hobbies to have those opportunities to make work, to be creative themselves, how we allow that space within our schedules. It has to be endorsed and supported on a macro level as well as a micro level. And that can be through finance, art schools much better, or music schools much better, or shifting towards a four-day week of work instead of a five, six-day week of work, because that might then, and hopefully will, allow for extra time and space to have those kinds of opportunities to write that poem, to take those photographs, to take a walk through a park, to want to redo the garden. And the third thing then is probably more an institutional level, and that is to support the arts in general through supporting museums and galleries, through supporting artists through uh, a living wage and writers through a living wage. 
to support those kinds of system structures and initiatives, whether they be existing or still to come, so that we can recognize the importance the culture provides to the worlds that we inhabit. And as I said earlier, this has been so vital to the last 18 months of us being able to get through, work through, live through an extraordinarily challenging time of pandemic. The culture has been one of the foremost crucial initiatives and aspects of our lives from making images, through making work, through writing stories and diaries, sharing these accounts through Instagram or other media feeds, creating platforms for new media feeds, creating new recipes, whatever it might be. These are all cultural initiatives and they have helped us get through extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult times in order for the sciences to then help us get out of these extraordinarily difficult times. So we need to support those kinds of possibilities for the future. And that means supporting artists, supporting creative practitioners, supporting the spaces that those works are being created in and presented. And I think if we can do that, as well as provide those opportunities for people to be sparked creatively, to have the opportunity to explore and experiment with their own creativity, then that's where I would like things to be going. I couldn't agree more. The arts are... I would almost say everything. We know the importance of the sciences and math and medicine, but the arts really are what makes life bearable and worth living and also where we define who we are. So we can disregard that at our own peril. And they complement each other as well. You can't have one without the other. That's just how life is. And then you mentioned Leonardo da Vinci earlier, a polymath who was a scientist, an artist, an engineer, all of these things together. Uh, as you say, make life bearable, but also make life possible. Exactly. And are the bridge between these different disciplines. So thank you, Anthony Gardner, for sharing with us your ideas for curation for the 21st century and the importance of the arts as a vehicle for understanding our past, present and future and who we are and what we value. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview is conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Eric Rosen. Digital Media Coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicolas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.